0: Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am your host, Megan jarvis and I am delighted that I get to sit down today with Jacob Moore. Jacob, thank you so much for being here.
1: Megan, thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure, and thanks for creating this platform. I think that's, to me, just so needed.
0: That's a lovely thing to say. We are going to, you and I have been talking a little off mic already, and we are going to be offering our listeners today, just a whole bunch of things to think about. Before we get into it, I just want to tell folks who you are and and where you are in the world. So I'm just going to read your bio. Jacob Moore is the founder of No Stigmas and a creator of Five Bridges to Wellness System. He's been internationally recognized for speaking, writing, and advocacy work in mental health and suicide prevention. So I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to link all of your stuff if people are really interested, but I'd love for you to go on and kind of tell us your your whole story. Can you just maybe walk us into how do you, how did you come into the world of grief and loss?
1: Well, I think I was born into it, Megan. <laughs> I mean, you know, my, my birth father was someone who was experienced an incredible amount of trauma as a youngster. And he was, you know, addicted in and out of jail. During my early years, my mom had to buy beer before she could buy groceries. You know, one of my earliest like sensory memories is, you know, just the tray of ever-present joints that were sitting on the coffee table and like marijuana smell, right? So that's how I grew up. And, And he was just he was in and out of jail so much that I didn't really know him except for a few like very interesting memories, like hunting in the desert and like shooting a jackrabbit and like Stopping on the, you know, in the alley to pick up parts for a bicycle and like just random things. But he was also, you know, someone who really struggled with mental health challenges and didn't have a lot of support. And despite being like an amazing, loving man, had, you know, insurmountable odds. And when I was six years old, he died by suicide. So, you know, our, our young family, my, my mom was 26 at the time and I'm the oldest of three. So it was just like survival mode right out of the, the gates.
0: Yeah. I always think, so we had a, we had a profound death and when I was nine and I always, it stuns me to hear that your mother was 26. Like that's a baby. I wasn't even married by the time I was 26. I just met my right. husband. The notion of what you all were experiencing at such a young age is really it's humbling when we think of you know we're all kind of inventing our way forward
1: yeah yeah and i mean yeah so she was she was 19 when she got pregnant with me and then I mean, my sister was born a year and 4 days later and then my brother a year and a half after that so you know she was you know working two jobs to try to make ends meet while simultaneously navigating this and and dealing with her own loss and, and trauma. So, you know, it was just, a, it was a recipe for a, a really toxic environment and it affected everything. You know, my, my self-perception confidence, my you know relationships, my schooling, you know, anything that you can imagine was affected. And I developed, you know, some very interesting coping mechanisms, some of them helpful, some of them, you know, Unhelpful that followed me through teenage years and beyond.
0: Yeah. How did you find your way into healing? I always ask this question when there are people who are doing the healing work. You Mm -hmm. know, implied in that is the notion that there must be some different ways of coping that you use now. And so I'm just curious, like, at what point from age six to where you are now, did you begin to understand? where where there were other choices of moving forward, maybe making your own choices in reaction yeah. to trauma
1: yeah that's that's a a great question and a, and a great way to frame that I, I would say we talked a, a little bit about this you know pre-show it really has existed in my body That is how I found my way forward at a young age that meant a lot of anxiety a lot of stress responses, you know, now understanding like polyvagal theory and how my soft tissue was, was storing trauma. It makes a lot of sense, but I had the worst stomach issues growing up. It affected my, my digestion so much. I would get headaches, get migraines It, it manifested in my body so much. So I was always seeking physical Physical Mm. solutions from medical doctors. And I would go and they would run tests and do, you know, halter monitors and stress tests and all this stuff, and could never find anything physically wrong with me. In fact, I was an athlete. I was, you know, I, I was in gymnastics. I was always, I always excelled in that sort of thing. And now realizing, oh, that's how I was processing. That's how I was dealing with that trauma is being very physically active, hyperactive, as you know, my teachers would have would have told you. But that's that's how I was dealing with it. Right. So, but that imprint, right? The body keeps the score, right? It, it it followed me all through. And and as I got older and started doing more research and expanding my circle, I started realizing, like, oh, these phantom, you know, pains and issues that are in my body. It it is actually caused by something. I'm not crazy. I'm not a human experiment. I'm not, you know, something that was like cooked up in a lab. It like there's a reason why this is happening.
0: Mm. And I imagine that was tremendously relieving. And also there was some grief associated with under the understanding that comes with this, these physical symptoms, these things that no doctors could help me with are actually an indication of, as I put them, sort of the shards of pain from Mm. childhood. And then as an adult, we get to choose different ways forward. So I imagine you did some of the body-centered treatments in order to learn and Mm -hmm. how how else, what else is possible, right? Those are the things what's difficult in childhood trauma is that we can't know what we don't know. And then we get to that point you know, where we're, I always say I've been chasing my healing since, you know, age nine. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, here, here's a different way.
1: Yeah. And, and that was introduced to me through peer support. And, you know, I had tried all the traditional methods and, worked with a lot of great therapists and tried 33 different combinations of pharmaceuticals to try to, you know, fix my brain and anxiety and panic disorder. And, you know, I mean, I was diagnosed with everything, seasonal affective disorder, depression, bipolar disorder, you name it. But it was ultimately someone, a person who is very generous with their story and shared that with me. That helped me realize I wasn't alone. I wasn't crazy. And there was an opportunity to, to choose a different path. And so that, that opened up a a whole new world for me and, you know, meditation became part of that somatic experiencing became part of that. I worked with a trauma-informed body worker named Edward Ulm in LA at the time, and he just gave me such an incredible gift of being able to experience and process trauma in a safe environment in a, in a way that, I mean, when I was on the table would, would go through, you know, every physical symptom I've ever had around, you know, having a panic attack or having, you know, a a trauma response, but I felt so nurtured and so taken care of. Like it's Like it it makes me feel like very emotional thinking about like what an incredible gift that was, but that was just, it was the beginning, beginning of the process and, and I'm still in it,
0: Yeah, you know? Yeah. I want to talk about that because again, I think particularly you and I share this experience of early childhood trauma. And so that maybe puts us in the more complicated texts or the more complicated therapies or the more complex, because You know, the brain is not really available to do a lot of the processing then and it's not so much about the events that happen, but more about the support. And when you don't get the support, you go inward because kids are so, you know, inherently narcissistic, how I feel becomes who I am. Mm -hmm. What I've experienced and you and I talked a tiny little bit about this off mic is that, you know, it's a legacy situation. Oh yeah. You can do a lot of healing and a lot of work, and still discover, "Oh my God, I'm stand- I, here. In my hands is my childhood trauma again." And I know I want. I would love to talk a little bit about where and how you have continued to grow and learn. You know, a lot of people come to me as an expert and expect me to say, "Well, here's the answer." And what I say, <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I mean, I I'd, I'd love to sit and talk about where you're going to find your guidance. And because I've had to find my own, I believe you can. Yeah. I don't have your answer. What I know is trauma yeah. comes back, and it comes back, and every time we hit it with new resources. So I'm curious: yeah. in your present day, have you been using your experiences? Have things been popping up where it's you know the growth and the and the development is still happening?
1: Yeah, I, I mean absolutely, and it, and it's it's really been. Striking, Megan, because like I'm a, (laughs) I become a like self help junkie. Like I, I love this. Like I, I do like self experimentation all the time. Where, you know, I like if there's something new, like EMDR, like I'm like, let's try it. Let's try, you know, no tropics. Let's, let's like, I just want to figure out what's going to make my brain better. And so I've been doing it for years and I have you know, this, this peer support community that developed no stigmas out of that. I have a wellness system, five bridges that came out of this practice to, to help other people with it. And so like, this is all just to say that like my wellness game is on point, right? If I can like have pride in anything, like it's on point and I, I have my, my morning routine and all these things that I do, like build all this resilience. And then it's like pandemic quarantine, my wife and I went through two miscarriage loss right in a row during the pandemic. And like, I'm back to square one. Yeah. I'm f- like floundering and all of the trauma responses are just back. So one of the biggest ones that I've like dealt with is anger and rage. And I think that's very typical for a lot of men. You know, when the lower level emotions are inaccessible or too hard to you know comprehend and process we go to anger. we go to that rage level and it's so easy and that's that's a culture that was in my family, right Argument yelling it was very criticism like it was so easy for me to just bring that forward and the stuff that I had spent, years working on that. I'd built like meditation practices around that. I'd like gone to extensive therapy and really like, I thought like I had uprooted that, taken it out and like buried it, you know, in a place far away. And all of a sudden I'm like, I'm doing this stuff again as we're grieving, right. As we're grieving, not one, but two loss of babies that we wanted very much to simultaneously be Acting like the worst version of myself. There's such an incredible amount of shame that comes with that. And to try to navigate it and to try to like continue to do the work that I do and feel like a fraud is just to you what that process has been like and like how it's just, it's really just like knocked me flat.
0: Yeah. First of all, it's unbelievably gracious of you to say all of what you just said, to to go outward with it instead of stay inward. I'm so sorry about the miscarriages. My husband and I experienced a miscarriage with our first pregnancy at 10 weeks. And at the time it was the worst thing that ever happened to me to happen to us. And he was lucky enough to have Support and then to be support because we talked openly about it to other people. Of course, I thought I didn't know anyone who went through a miscarriage, and when I said I've just lost this pregnancy, it was like a hundred hands went up. Like, oh yeah, I went.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: But I really do understand the way in which our history can drive the bus. In a way that can be so humbling, right? Like, and I, again, I think I shared this with you off mic, but when my mom died, I knew I had this whole therapist meta of understanding that I was developing PTSD. I mean, I knew that the images Mm -hmm. were getting worse and not better. And I knew that I was likely going to end up in inpatient treatment. I mean, I just I have been doing this for twenty years. The people who come you,
1: to you me know come the signs
0: or this. The EMDR had not worked the, you know, the sensory motor therapy. It was the confluence of other things where it was like it was the end of the summer. People hadn't come back. I was furious. I was furious because what I hadn't really understood, in becoming a trauma informed therapist was that my intention was to inoculate myself from anything bad ever happening to me again <laughs> so it was just really wildly humbling and yeah. much like you the way in which i tra- i had to sort of transform it was to talk about it otherwise you know i had i had an, a neighborhood friend who sort of said like what are we telling people about what you're doing and i was like oh we are telling people i am going to an inpatient trauma facility to get treatment for people. Day. that's, that's what, it and then when i came out that's what i told all my clients and yeah. you know one of my brothers very lovingly <laughs> was like what are you going to tell your clients and i was like oh you don't know therapy this is the ultimate street cred right here like telling yeah. people you know I
1: <laughs> you could buy in
0: <laughs> yeah but i but i do think you know you know all sort of smiles and joking aside what we think we're building is a better capacity to show up for our vulnerable selves yeah. and to find ourselves in that vulnerability that feels so like childhood again really is it can if if we're not able to get to it quickly it really can be re-traumatizing right
1: yeah ab- absolutely here's where it gets even more complex because when you are also partnered or close with someone like my wife who also has her own yeah childhood trauma and ptsd then it's like this echo chamber of activation and activation and flooding and trauma responses and to try to break that cycle is in- incredibly difficult and and like you said humbling and i that has been the shift that i've tried to make away from shame and into you know really the giving myself a lot of grace and a lot of humil- humility understanding that like hey this happens to anyone, of course, anyone who experiences something like this would have a similar reaction and would revert back to those baser instincts that were like ingrained that lizard brain that I had, you know, from, from a kid, you know, but I think it's, it's still like the cognitive dissonance of, you know, thinking my, I'm one thing and seeing, the actions happen you know is is really challenging but I think to your point that is what I knew to do. That was like if nothing else stuck with me during that time that one coping mechanism of talking about it of sharing about it stuck with me and and I, I did the same thing. I, I I told my friends, I told my family and and it was incredible to hear how many people said me too. And friends like dear friends that I like I'd never known that they had experienced a miscarriage loss and to you know be able to have those conversations as men that that doesn't often happen. It's most typically something that you know is is a, is a woman's thing okay. and you know and that's something that we make a specific distinction about in our house. we experienced miscarriage loss together. yeah my wife, did pregnancy. And now we have a five month old, our rainbow baby. Yeah. When Liam, he's, he's amazing. And I'm so much in love, but it's very, very specific that miscarriage loss happened together, but the birth she did, she, that was 100% her. I don't, I don't get to take credit for that. So (laughs) I
0: like that. I like the respect of that. And, and also, I mean, you know, I think one of the things that is true about trauma is that you kind of can't see past your own hands when you are mm-hmm. in it, right? Like yeah. and and I think about this across all the conversations whether we're talking about grief and loss and we're talking about a singular experience with grief and loss or this phrase that I've coined which is like obscured loss, which is you have a singular experience mm-hmm. inside a collective experience, like your mother died of COVID, While everyone was experiencing COVID. And, you know, it's really hard inside a partnership. I mean, my husband and I have this phrase like cranky pants, like there's one pair of cranky pants and we can't both wear it. (laughs) That's like a joking way. But really, when we're talking about trauma, what we're talking about is your body is activated past the point of feeling safe and stabilizing trauma. It becomes, you know, when people are like, oh, you got to put the oxygen mask on, like that's. Fine. It's become a little bit trite when you know that your partner has a, has a history or you yourself has a history of becoming dysregulated past the point of safety. That's like your, you know, your car telling you it has no oil. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what else you might be wanting to do or how important that other stuff is. The car's going to blow if we don't get oil in and actually to get all the people in the car and around the car have to care about that. Mm. And it's an important aspect, you know, when I'm often asked to talk about like forgiveness or anger or resiliency, all those words are really important, but none of them get to exist if the pain is too high. If the pain threshold is too high, that is the only thing that matters. If the suffering is too great, if you're not regulated, resiliency is not an option. Forgiveness is not an option. None of those things are on board until, and when you are reactivating childhood trauma, it's really difficult because I used to be resilient and I used to have forgiveness and I've had experiences with being regular, but I'm not right now.
1: But I'm not, I, you you don't know how much I needed to hear that Megan. You know, one of my biggest coping mechanisms is to, to do, to do more. You know, I, I often skip over the feeling and just go right to doing and even being aware of it, you know, that's been one of my, my wife, Lindsay's, you know, biggest challenges being partnered with me is that like, we are often in two very different camps. She wants, wants to feel it and I want to fix it. And, you know, I've, I've now gone into conversations saying like, Hey, you want me to, or feel it. Where are you at right now? So that I know the gauge, but she's, she's been expressing like, Hey, we need to slow down. We we're still trying to do too much. You know, we did a home renovation and the birth and this and that, and, you know, growing business, launching a podcast, you know, doing all this stuff. And she's like, can we please slow down? So that's just to say, that's a great reminder that like, we can't possibly do more or even like what, we may see as a basic level, if you're, if we're in survival mode, if we're just trying to deal and, and create a sense of safety, then how can we possibly keep layering other things on top of that?
0: You know, this makes me think of something I've been in. It's like a new learning for me, both from my own experience with grief, but also from like digging in and listening differently to people who were talking about grief and loss, because historically, when, a, when someone comes into a therapist's office or a clinician's office and says, I have a lot of feelings going on. I'm thinking about moving to Arizona, cutting my hair and becoming a,
1: <laughs> That's a, right?
0: a therapist's response to that. We have been taught to respond to that with the breaks no, that's too much change. In AA, we call it pulling a geographic, right? Right. This concept of like, you're trying to change your insides by changing your outsides. Yep. But, and I have a lot of chills when I'm saying this because I run somatic, but this is something that I know to be true. There is a mother load of energy that gets activated, particularly in traumatic loss, particularly for people who have loss across their timeline of life. It's like a watermelon that is handed to you. Mm. And for some people, building a house is how they're going to learn how to carry the watermelon. For some people, driving across the country to Arizona is how they're going to learn how to carry the watermelon. Sure. And we look at that from a therapy perspective as like avoidant and destructive. But mm. I actually think, and I think this so much, I, like it is the truth in my system. I think what grievers are trying to do is accept the fact that the before is no longer there Hmm. and to find a brick to put under their feet, to move forward into this Hmm. after. And sometimes they have to drive for a month before they can get any bricks. And sometimes it might mean you move to Arizona. And that's where the bricks are. And that's where you build your path. Lots of times it means you go to Arizona and you come home in a couple of months. So I'm just saying that because I think men, most of the men that I work with talk about my instinct is to fix. And I have been just recently saying, what does that feel like in terms of energy inside your body? Tell me Mm -hmm. how you know you need to fix. And they're talking about a different energy than I imagine your wife is talking about. They talk about it as, bees and energy and and panic and across the chest Mm -hmm. and when people are saying can we slow down it's usually in the stomach and it's usually a different viscose texture and it usually has some warmth to it so I'm only pointing that out because in my experience there's trauma and there's loss and then there's loss and trauma and we can go inside and get Really specific about what the energy feels like. The needs are different, and we do all this shaming. Yeah, and we do all this. What's the right way? And I don't do a lot of. Think we know
1: much. Shooting on ourselves.
0: So much shooting. So much shooting. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's really, it's, it's really difficult. So I really appreciate you describing it. I want to know a little bit about. I mean, you mentioned it quickly. The ways in which you have turned your own healing into your life's work. So can you mm-hmm. talk to us about you no know, stigmas and and talk to us about your your wellness work because I know that has a particular lens that I'm super interested in.
1: Yeah, it really is connected to what you were just talking about because, you know, what did I do when I was trying to figure all of this out? I moved to Argentina for a year and I ended up you know, as a kayak instructor in Costa Rica, and you know, I, I, I barely graduated high school. I don't have a college degree, and I somehow found myself, you know, having success in, in sales, but wholly unfulfilled, and you know, drinking, smoking, and you know, doing all all sorts of sordid things to try to make myself feel better, and none of it worked. Yeah. And you know, like I said, it was it was going and exploring and and carrying my watermelon, you know and and trying to you know i guess float it in a kayak was like how i how i found you know how i needed to process and how i needed to to deal with it and along the way you know i, I just i met incredible humans who were so generous and showed me bits of themselves and you know and paths and like you like you mentioned with therapy you you can't give someone a recipe but certainly we can Shine a light on a path for someone and help them, hopefully, find their way. And, you know, I can't stress enough the value that peer support has had for me. Yeah. Now, I'm, I've I've had a therapist since I was sixteen years old, and I I will until the day I die. Everyone needs an impartial third party who is on their side and rooting for them, absolutely. And peer support, I think, is a necessary supplement to that. And so. For me, really digging into that and in the true sense of like being vulnerable, being open, allowing ourselves to just be exposed to other humans who get it and who aren't going to, you know, shame or blame us is such an incredible gift. But, you know, for me, I still, I still had to do the work. I still had to, you know, so that, that created a sense of safety for me to do the work, but I still had to dig deep and do it. But yeah. So, so somatic experiencing was a big part of that for me and unlocking that sort of hidden, you know, where, where it was living in that fascia, in that soft tissue and, you know, getting, you know, some, some vagus nerve toning so that I was not just up here on edge all the time. If you think I'm high energy now, just, <laughs> 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 but, you know, for me, I, I started to realize that things fell into five different categories for me in my life. These support systems were, were where I needed to, to start my, my base camp, so to speak. Yeah. And really investing in those sources of strength helped give me the confidence and the you know stability to be able to then grow from there. Yeah. I now call that my first bridge bond. And more than who or what we connect to, bond is about how we connect. Yeah. Anyone who's experienced you know trauma or grown up in, you know in a, an abusive or a toxic environment has learned attachment styles that maybe aren't helpful, has learned, you know, maladaptive, you know, relationship skills. And so what we focus on a lot, you know, in Five Bridges is how are we connecting to people in a way that best meets and serves our needs? So outside of like maybe the family you were born into, how are you building your systems of support in a strategic way that meets all of your needs? Understanding that one person can't do that. So we need to diversify. We need to take a look at a lot of different sources of strength in order to have all of our needs met. And when we do that, like you said, it's, it's more than just the oxygen mask. Yeah, It is really, truly understanding, you know, those needs and, and even wants, you know, on, on a relational level to be able to then move forward. The second sort of bucket that things fell into for me was things that I can control what I put into my body. So what I eat, drink, you know, medicine supplements, but also the media that I consume, the conversations that I have, what I read, the things that I fill my head with. Yeah. I noticed there was a a huge, you know, challenge that would arise when I'm I'm filling my mind with things that aren't aren't positive or aren't, you know, in alignment with my values. So we call that fuel. And that's really comprehensive of of all of those things yeah. that go into the system. Even, even tactile, you know, input is, is included in that, which, you know, we talk about that manual therapy is being part of that. And then the third bridge is move. Move is what you do with your body. It's your kinesthetic output, of course, like, you know, fitness, mobility, but we also look at those internal movements like breath work digestion our neurological systems yep. and how it's all connected and how you know some of it happens autonomously some of it is semi-autonomous that we can control to a certain degree but we can influence all of it with what yep. we put into our body and you know creating that safety net around us and then after we move naturally we come to a place of rest which yep. is the fourth bridge rest includes our sleep hygiene, of course, but we look at, you know, periods of rest throughout the day, like meditation or, you know, naps or siesters taking breaks, mental breaks, longer forms of rest, like retreat and, you know, those sort of effects that, that, that can have. And again, really bringing strategy to this as a new dad who, you know, like sleep is fleeting, days, um, I've had to learn how can I steal those moments of rest and really, you know, recapture that at other times during the day, because like the, it's a, it's a fallacy that like, you can just like nap when he naps, like it it doesn't work like that because like, yeah, when are you going to do laundry? When are you going to make food? When are you going to do all the other stuff that needs to happen? You know, so what are other ways that we can get those moments of rest? And then the, the fifth and final bridge is give and gives our, our positive output. And that's how we, you know, connect with the world. That's our gratitude practice. I I feel like that's the highest form of wellness. And you know, sequentially it comes last because we want to build up to a place where we're able to sustainably give. But if you look at the five bridges outside of like the very elementary view of them. They're they're really all interconnected and yeah. they're fluid. And the law of reciprocity states that, you know, when we give, when we put positive energy out in the world, it returns to us. And so, you know, when when we are giving and, and putting that out, we're creating a bond to other people, to, you know, animals, to the world, and feeding that energy back into the system and so it becomes a self-sustaining feedback loop when we're practicing, you know, these bridges all together. So so that's really become the core of how I now a- address, you know, things that come up. And, you know, and this is right for me. I worked with my doctor to try titrate off of meds, you know, several years ago and have found this this system and backup plans that that work for me. And you know, so now I'm doing it in a completely holistic way, and I, and I would say, you know, sharing that with others is probably the the greatest form of helping to keep me well. You know,
0: it's so it's so inspiring to hear you talk about it. The word integrity keeps popping into my mind, like just the hmm. actual. It, definition of sort of like, what is it that I believe in? Then what do I practice? And I think, you know, practicing integrity, the idea that, that I can, there are actionable items that I can do that maybe aren't going to get me the results I want, but are going to be done with the intention of that result. So it's almost mm-hmm. like a mindfulness practice in and of itself. I love the fact that you, t- that you start, that the early work is around networking, because I do think, when we're talking about sort of stabilizing a difficult experience, whether it's a miscarriage, whether it's childhood trauma, whether it's COVID, you know, whether it's a recent loss, we know that isolation is mm-hmm. something that is progressive and we know that it is not good for us. And the interesting thing about grief and loss is because people have not been educated, find it so awkward and uncomfortable or terrified because they think there's a right thing to do and they don't know what to do. Yeah. They tend to leave the griever by themselves and the griever Mm -hmm. begins to tell themselves a story. And so one of the first things I do with people is I just challenge that. I just, you know, when I'm working with companies, I say like, no, it's just not right. You know, it's totally well within the griever to tell you that they don't want you to come to their front door. They can set some boundaries, but you always have to try to go close yeah. because the isolation is, you know, God forbid, there is some unresolved trauma in there. What happens when I feel bad is I become bad. Yeah. You don't mean to do it. It's just what happens. And so I just love that you begin with the network because it's almost an inoculation against that happening too fast, you know, and that's what grievers tell us is that I had this swarm of people. They didn't all do it right, but their intentions were good. They did things I didn't expect. They offered, you know, things that I wouldn't have known to ask for and I felt held. Right. And so, you know, for those people, and I really appreciate the fact that you are, you are stressing you know, more than once that therapy is one piece of the constellation mm-hmm. that there are many, many people for whom therapy is not going to be the way. And I have been really open with my, with my listeners that like, look, talk therapy was not the thing that helped me after my mom died. I did much more writing. I've done much more researching and talking and giving back as part of the practice of that makes me feel better. Yeah. But sitting with a therapist, even someone that I loved who was like, you know, let's talk about your feelings and how you feel about it in your body. I was instantly like, fuck off. I don't feel like doing that. I don't yeah, want do- to Yeah. Yeah. So I really appreciate you talking about, you know, peer support as being the way that, you know, led you to your own answers with these things. And I think this, what you are offering with five bridges is it just covers all of the all of the areas in which we could possibly see somebody fall off the bus, you know, like we could lose you here. We could lose you here. We could lose you here. Who, who are the people that five bridges is for? How do people come into using all of those resources?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So, you know, of course, I want to say five bridges is for everyone. Right. And, and, and that's true. It is very, you know, it's very it's a very simple system and intentionally so because when someone is starting out and and they're just learning these skills we have to make it so but as you dig deep into it you find it's it's really infinitely complex i'm still we just you know had a coach training and And I learned from my coaches and I'm like, wow, I didn't think about it this way. So that's just to say it's it's predominantly being used. So talking on the business side of things, we license the program to community service boards, to nonprofit organizations, small city and county governments, and we train their employees to disseminate the system. So they take five bridges into their communities, where they're serving at-risk populations. So we're working with groups of people who are incarcerated or formerly incarcerated, people who are in you know recovery programs. Yep. It's used in prevention quite often in conjunction with other programs. And, and, and that's really why I built it because I've, I've been through, like I said, a lot of training and a lot of different programs. And what I felt was missing was something that, sort of bridge the gap between a lot of very specific skill sets. So you learn mental health first aid, you learn ACEs, you learn safe talk, you learn assist, you learn all of these very specific programs that have wonderful applications, but how do we bridge the gap between all of them? Mm -hmm. So, you know, from a, if if we look at things from like the, the system is built on these principles, it is trauma responsive not just trauma informed we go beyond trauma informed to creating an environment that helps individuals and communities be able to understand and anticipate and create an environment that is receptive for people who have experienced trauma our our evidence you know based approaches are motivational interviewing. So our our coaches are trained to be able to work with individuals to help guide them through the process of building their own wellness action plan. So that works in conjunction with something like a wellness recovery action plan or other wellness plans, but again, on a more comprehensive level and harm reduction. Yeah. we really believe that you know adding positive habits instead of focusing on taking away and coming from a punitive perspective we really want people to focus on what good are they adding to their lives how are they helping themselves building themselves up and we find that the unhelpful habits more naturally fall away if we are reducing harm then we are helping people to become more resilient and thrive and not want to engage in things that might be harmful to them. Yeah. You know, so that's that's the general thing but so here's the really interesting thing. That's that's who we built it for, right? I built it for right. for, for myself, people right. who who didn't have those skill sets growing up or didn't have those resources and we have you know a youth youth curriculum now as well. But what happens is our our clinicians and our coaches getting to focus on positive things all day long learning the system uh, they themselves are using it yeah. and they're integrating it into their lives because a lot of people who are helpers or caretakers they they don't learn those skill sets or they don't integrate those skill sets into their own practice yeah. and so they're working at a deficit especially coming you know out of out of covid and so they're using it themselves, helping bolster themselves. They're speaking the same language as those that they're serving. So they're able to come from a, you know, not a not this old hierarchy, not of, of a place with white coat syndrome, but coming to them on the same level, bringing peer support. And they themselves being able to, instead of focusing on death and dying all day long and, and harmful habits, they get to focus on positive wellness, and it, it's been great for their mental health and for the culture of their organizations as well.
0: It's so important. I said to you, I said to you before we started recording that you know, one of the questions I get asked a lot, and even in a, another podcast recording today, we were talking about how there's this like lie out there that mental health providers somehow have access to some incredible network of resources so that even though they're doing this hard job, like, don't worry about them because they are, I mean, the number of people that I have heard say we are trained not to take it on. And then when people say that to me, I'm like, really, what was the training? Uh I would like to take this training. I've been doing this for 25 years. Now I've had a lot of therapy So I have a lot of tools, but you're actually talking about something that is more complicated and more holistic, right? Which is, you know, the number of times that I say to people, like, I'm not the greatest meditator, but I know that meditating helps. Mm -hmm. What I'm really trying to explain to them is that, you know, I want you to have a system that is about the you know, almost like taking off your jacket and dumping your work bag when you come home. I want you to have a system for that that feels intentional, right? Back to that word of integrity, because what we know is everybody's got some stuff and all that stuff can pile up energetically inside our bodies. And so if we are not off shifting, and so I'll say this to- Yeah, and I don't think I've said this to folks, but I use a lot of Reiki. I'm training in Reiki right now Mm. because I find Reiki to be a tool that I can use on other people and use on myself. But most of the therapy tools that I'm trained in, like EMDR, and sensory motor psychotherapy, I can't do them on myself. So even the stuff that I've spent tens of thousands of dollars in training in that are helpful to other people are not, as you're describing, a holistic system that sort of is a net that catches me when I have had, you know, a really, I had a, I had a week. It it, early on in the pandemic, where I had a friend die by suicide, there were two personal anniversaries in my life, and I, you know, assisted in some care of a child that was dying. I mean, I was not the best version of myself. I was not okay. I was not healthy, but I also didn't, because the trauma was activated, I didn't have the good perspective that some of the people from my network came and said, like, maybe you need to take a step back right now and just you know, get your own trauma, get your own pain, your own suffering stabilized so that you can. So I just really appreciate the five elements of it. And the fact that you're, what you're describing is it's really, it is really meant as a life sustaining practice with a lot of skill sets. And I would encourage people who listen to this podcast. And I have a lot of therapists that I would encourage them to check this out because I think it's the thing that we have been talking about. You know, why don't we have this? Why isn't this? Why during the pandemic, didn't some genius person come together and say, we need a net for the providers that are out there because they're going to just burn their, you know, eyebrows off and they're not going to be able to keep doing the work, which is turning out to be true, right? Anyone who's trying to get in to see a provider will tell you their line, their lines are long and it's not like there's millions more hitting the marketplace you know we we need this this is something that is i'm sure you're seeing it people are delighted that someone is saying try this this is a this is a system
1: yeah the the organizations and you know clinics that we're working with I think because we're taking a different approach, we're coming from a non-clinical perspective, so we're able to do things a lot differently. And that's with the entire setup of, you know, five bridges, is different than a lot of programs out there. We come in with a very holistic approach. We say, you know, not only we're going to help you build this roadmap to implement the system for your clients but like let's take a look at your organizational structure. so we talk to leadership and and we really take a look at like have you built a trauma responsive environment for your staff? are you actually practicing what you preach and you may say, hey we have employee resources and we have you know this you know this wellness program but as executives, we're actually not taking the time to practice it ourselves and what that says is you know do what i say not what i do and it leads to staff feeling like they can't in fact take the time yeah. to practice self care because it's not exemplified to them yeah. so we we have to look at that the organizational structure and say what are you doing as leaders to actually bring wellness and actually provide the opportunity for self care for your staff understanding, like, we, we don't even have to talk about the research and the stats on this. We know that yeah. it's necessary and we're in the business of it. So why are we not doing it? It's, yeah, you know, it, it boggles my mind.
0: Well, I imagine what you discover is the, you know, the space, and certainly I've found myself in this where people say the right things and they use the right words. But then when you're in the space, they don't really know what they're talking about. And so mm-hmm. it, it, the intention is always good. I have not yet met somebody who was like, yeah. you know, they mean well and they care about their people, but there's often a, a big sort of educational component around even just using yeah. words trauma-informed. People have heard it enough that they think they know what it means. Grief-informed, you know, that concept of actually there's core training, learning. It's not just someone who's been through a loss. In fact, sometimes people who have been through the loss are the worst. They're the ones who come in. Yeah. They know all the things and they're not flexible. Yeah. I mean, it just, it, it's really exciting. And I, I, we're going to link in the podcast notes every, you know, all the five bridges materials that people can come and take a look at it. Can you tell us a little bit, I'm just watching our clock. Can you tell us a little bit? I know you have an exciting project that has just hit the market and that people can consume with you, that is you getting your voice out there more. Can you tell us a little bit about your podcast?
1: Yeah, thanks. So yeah, just launched the podcast. It's called Passion and Profits Without Burnout. And it is specifically for service leaders. So people who, who do what we do, who are trying to make the most impact with limited resources and trying to do so without burning out. Uh, a lot of the you know people that I talk to are you know they got into this business because they have their own experiences, their own lived experiences that they've turned into expertise or into a profession, and and so they're coming with this passion. They have to you know hit the bottom lines of their organizations that they work for, but they're they're coming to this without a lot of resources. So you know giving really tangible skills and tools for how do we leverage what little we have? How do we help foster this environment? How do we help our staff, you know, continue to do the work that they're doing without burning out as well. And we have just great conversations with experts who you know, in any cases who have helped me build my business or helped my, you know, clients build their businesses so that we can share them and really pull these resources together. It's, it's more of like a a coalition than anything, understanding that we can't do it alone individually. You know, we have a piece of the puzzle, but we need to bring those all together to collectively paint this picture of wellness for everyone.
0: What's so important about a podcast that covers those topics is generally what happens is we don't really stop to think about that stuff until the crisis is in front of us. And you know, but I'll say it for the listeners that your brain is not able to be creative and to be curious because that, that it does those things when it's at a state of relaxation or actually Mm -hmm. even stimulated into excitement When we are in a state of crisis, we're in a different brain state. And so all the things that we want to do, which is like be innovative with our resources or creative or collaborative or think... We can't do that in the moment. I mean, I'm sure there are people who can, but as for the most part, that's not how human beings are wired. So I love right. this idea that people can come to your podcast, you know, follow it, listen to it weekly, have those seeds of innovation and collaboration and networking. You know, we're not talking about people who have gajillions of dollars. We're talking about people who came as a passion project and they want to right to serve and still also keep the lights on in their buildings that other people can come and listen to you guys talk about that. And then that's in their arsenal. You know, people often say to me, what's one thing that I can do to become more grief informed? Listen to a podcast. You're going to hear grievers talk about grief. You're going to learn something. It's not, it doesn't have to be heavy and hard, but it it does have to be intentional. And so I just love that, you know, this is another offering that you're going to be able to have your team and the people who've influenced you and people that you're interested in have conversations with them that the trickle down effect may be, and, you know, I'm sure will be that people get to learn from that and be inspired by it. It's
1: very, yeah absolutely and and i'm learning so much and that's the that's the cool thing about this podcast and and my team is amazing because they from the very beginning they're like no we need to have a teaching podcast so that people actually get to learn so that's i think the coolest thing is they they come and they learn so each episode they're taking away tangible tools and okay. sets and being able to apply them directly to the work that they do
0: it has been a real honor to talk to you. I knew as soon as we turned on our cameras that I was never going to want to stop talking to you. I really hope, well, I, your podcast sounds amazing. The Five Bridges work sounds amazing. I have a feeling that you and I are going to keep crossing paths because we know all the same people. And Yeah, um, likewise. But, but I would really love that. I mean, I'm just really inspired by the work that you're doing and the openness, which is feels real similar to me about like the no shame component of this is who I've been all my life. And these are the things that I'm learning. And I, you know, and I'm going to continue to learn them and I'm going to continue to stumble. I, I really, I could talk about that all day long. So I'm really grateful to what you've offered our listeners today, which is a lot of tangible stuff and resources that they can come and connect with. What's the best way we'll put the things in the show notes, but what is the best way for them to be in touch with you or learn more if they want to?
1: Yeah, people can, you know, connect with me through my website, Jacobmoore.com. I hang out on Instagram most of the time. So at Jacob Moore on Instagram. There's
0: some cute baby pictures on Instagram.
1: There are lots of cute baby (laughs) pictures. I think Wynn has kind of taken it over. And listen, I love to connect with people and I love to learn, but mostly right now, like if you have great advice, like please hook it up. (laughs) Come come check it out.